Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, our guest is Jordan Zaslow, an award-winning director and producer and champion of female voices. She is currently serving as executive director of Women for the Win, a coalition committed to creating positive political change and giving voices to underrepresented female candidates. We speak with Jordan today about her work for Women for the Win, the importance of gender equality and representation in our democracy, and how and what role brands and public figures have in promoting messaging that strengthens our democratic norms, structures, and institutions. Welcome, Jordan. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's our pleasure to have you. When I first looked up the organization that you're leading, I was so excited because we don't have enough of, obviously, these organizations in centering gender, gender equality uh, in elected representation. And so I really would like to start with the history behind Women for the Win. How did it come about? What's your origin story? There was the initial origin story, which happened in 2018 in response to the Kavanaugh hearings. Um, Rama Mosley, who's a, she's a director based in Los Angeles, watching along with, you know, millions of other women across the country. And she was angry and, and feeling, feeling like she was wondering what to do and, and how to fix the problem and, and how to, you know, make sure that things like this didn't happen to women ever again. And um, I think that we all were feeling the same way that day, you know, just sort of helpless and, and frustrated. And, you know, our brains were probably exploding with, with ideas for ways to get involved and help and, and sort of join the cause, even if we had never done that before in our lives. Um, so she tweeted on her Twitter page, um, she's a director, so she tweeted, um, if you're a female candidate running for public office, I will direct your campaign video for free. I don't think she anticipated the response that she got from that, which was just inundated with, with not just candidates running, but with people wanting to join her in her effort, you know, creatives from across the country who, who wanted to do, be able to do the same thing for a candidate. So from there, they got, a, you know, they started a roster and um, they were able to help dozens of candidates. Um, I, I'm not 100% sure on the numbers. I think, you know, north of 65 candidates that year. Um, and then, and then, you know, as everything sort of cyclical, um, the 2018 election happened. It was a pink wave. So many women won. I think 100 women, more than 100 women won um, uh, house seats, U.S. house seats, which was very exciting. And then we sort of shifted focus and we started concentrating a little bit more closely on the presidential election. And that's when I came in because I started to see the way that female candidates were being covered in the news. And, you know, the, like, the question of likability and all these other unnamed um, sort of disqualifying factors came into play. And, um, and I realized that it was going to be more of an uphill battle than just, you know, one more pink wave. So, um, so I got involved and now I'm the executive director and I'm, you know, running the operation. But um, we got a new flux of volunteers when Elizabeth Warren dropped out and when we were left with two <laughs> older white males that we had seen before every single time since, you know, since the beginning of our nation's creation. So, so now we have women that are charged up from the Kavanaugh hearings and from, you know, um, the way that women are covered in the news and now um, now this idea that we only have to we, we only have men to choose from for our president. We are working tirelessly to help more women across the country land more House seats, more Senate seats and in local elections, too. So when you said you and Rama and other women who are watching the Kavanaugh hearings were upset, first of all, what, you were part of the media group. What did you have in common with each other? 
So I think that the the fact that she posted this, she posted her tweet, I think, in, in a number of different um, platforms. And a lot of directors, producers, crew, cinematographers, like you name it, um, we, have, we already have a really um, tight-knit support system. There's so many different platforms online that, that are, were created with the idea of sort of giving women the support that they need in, in an industry that is still very much run by men. And even if it's not run by men, it's kind of, you know, the Harvey Weinsteins of the world were, were created in this, in this, you know, entertainment industry. So I think that, you know, we all have already spent, you know, years kind of in these groups supporting each other and, and even just supporting each other's voices in meetings and things like that. So when she posted that, um, there was already a network of, of women that were ready for, you know, the call to action and they were ready to answer it. And I'm interested, too, in the response to the Kavanaugh hearings being the impetus, because even within the domestic violence circle, I'm very well connected to lots of survivors of domestic violence and uh, gender-based violence and sexual assault and rape. And a very active um, friend and ally of mine was actually present at the Kavanaugh hearings for a domestic violence-related resolution. and when she came back to tell me about the victory for that particular resolution, I was, of course, well, I was, I was complaining about watching the Kavanaugh hearings because I was live tweeting to my community about it. And I was very, very surprised and disappointed to hear that this friend, a white Italian Catholic, did not believe Christine Blasey Ford. And so there was not this uniform response. And so I'm curious about the group that you're part of, the media, you know, producers, directors, communicators. Was there any dissent? Was there anybody who didn't respond in an equally outraged way? That's an interesting question. I don't, you know, at this point, I think I've, <laughs> I think that everyone is sort of living in a little bit of an echo chamber. I hate to say it. And I, I, I hate to think that it's true because I, I like to think that, you know, I'm, I've, expanded my horizons enough to know what everyone thinks about everything. But as far as I could tell that year, the outrage was palpable, at least to everyone that I was working with and all the women that I was working with. Um, I think that it was, it was just sort of the next really big disappointment after the 2016 election. And I think it was a little bit of like even a PTSD, feel, like a feeling of PTSD of really so, okay, so we already had this crushing event in November 2016. And now here we are in, I think it was July of 2018, with just, you know, it's, it's piling on. I didn't, I don't know if I knew anyone <laughs> that didn't believe her. How much would you attribute your response to disbelieving Kavanaugh versus believing Dr. Ford? I guess it was probably a combination of both. I think it was even even the, the way that Kavanaugh was behaving, if you even if you didn't believe her, we have been sort of used to and, and I, I mean now every, everything is so different even two years later, but I think that we had been conditioned to seeing our political leaders and especially, you know, Supreme Court justice nominees behaving with, you know, a sense of dignity and calmness and, you know, sort of feel this feeling that the Supreme Court was going to be a beacon of justice um, and maturity and, and dignity. So even, you know, if you believe her, or if you didn't believe her, even if you only saw the way that Kavanaugh was behaving in response to the allegations, uh, I think that was, that was even enough for me. And I, and I did believe her, but that would have been enough for me to disqualify him if it were up to me. Okay, because I'm actually, so one of the other guests in our series on democracy is a documentary filmmaker who produced a film called The Brainwashing of My Dad. And it chronicles the rise of right-wing media and you know right-wing radio as well, Fox News and right-wing right uh, radio. And there's, there's a series of tactics that they use. And so I'm wondering if maybe because your group is more sophisticated, more, you know, in tune with those tactics, that you're better able to see when people are trying to use those tactics to manipulate you. And so mm -hmm. there was a more um, cohesive response because everybody in the group is more elevated in your expertise around communications. 
That's, that's interesting. And sometimes I wonder too, because sometimes I think before, maybe before 2016 and before Me Too and all of these other uh, sort of groundbreaking historical moments, all of the same things were probably happening to us in meetings. We were probably being dismissed. We were probably being, you know, discounted. Our opinions were kind of diminished um, in those kinds of settings. And so I think that even just having these communities to be able to write a, a comment and say, something happened to me today in a meeting. Is this normal? Is this something that has happened to you? Am I overreacting? And then to hear from the rest of the group, you're not overreacting. Imagine if the tables were turned, would that happen to a man? Um, and then kind of just being in a, in a supportive environment like that for, and I guess now I've been in it for like four years or three years, and knowing that, you know, I'm not overreacting. And even though those systems are put in place to make me think that I'm, you know, an emotional woman or whatever, um, whatever it is that they want to make me feel like I'm being unreasonable uh, or hysterical, you know, there's women who have been doing it for decades longer than I have, and, and they can kind of jump in and, and make sure that I know that I'm not being crazy. And when, you, when you've been in a group like that for enough time, I think that you can start to, there's a little bit more of a shorthand, and you can kind of start to see, okay, this isn't normal. And of all these other women that I respect are, you know, the ones telling me that it's not normal. Would you say that this expertise that your group has um, makes women, that's what makes women for the women special is that you have these tools to differentiate the female candidates out there and hopefully dispel or debunk some of the myths, you know, that their opponents are putting out. I think that we probably don't even realize how much. And so we, we look at our technical skills and we think that that's all that we're donating to these women, to these candidates. But what it really comes down to, I think, is something that we probably can't even, it's not even tangible. We call these women and we have these creative kickoff calls with them with like a, you know, a team of award-winning cinematographers and, you know, Emmy award-winning producers and, um, the, you know, teams that have put together Super Bowl commercials and we're all ban- banning together for these candidates. And I think that the support system that the candidates feel as a result is is very special. And I think that it's probably, we probably don't even know how, how well that's going to pay off in the long run. So let's talk about your resources. You're right now staffed with over a thousand active volunteers. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. how, how did you attract that many people with such a broad range of talents and skills? Yeah, yeah, it's kind of remarkable. And I still kind of look at the list. And I'm like, is it like, I'll scroll through and I'll look at all the names. And I'll be like, is it really a 1000? Like, are all these people really here for the same cause? It's kind of incredible. And it's, you know, over such a short period of time. So there was, as I mentioned, there were two waves of, you know, getting all the volunteers together. There was the first when, you know, Women for the Win was first originated, in, you know, after the Kavanaugh hearings. And I think that was because Rama, Rama has a very big network and she's, you know, she's been in the industry for a million years. So she um, has attracted all of the cream of the crop, you know, talent. So originally, I think all of the different platforms that she posted on, people were really fired up and really excited to help. And um, of course, really angry. So that was the first wave. And then we we saw an influx in volunteers signing up um, after Elizabeth Warren dropped out. And the idea that we would have another another election without a single woman for miles was, you know, I think it was so disappointing to all the women who had been looking on that stage at the debates, seeing the most diverse debate stage in our history. And feeling like, okay, maybe we're making some progress. And I guess that still is progress, but it's not enough because here we are. <laughs> we're going to end up with a white male president no matter what. So. Right. And we don't, we don't know. And, you know, Biden hasn't chosen his running mate yet. So we don't know whether he's going to keep his promise on choosing a woman. You know, besides their volunteering their time, what's the response like in terms of financial contribution? Besides donating their time, are these volunteers also putting their money where their mouth is and donating money or airtime or whatever other things they can give to make sure that the stories of these candidates have equal representation and can be competitive with the opponents that they're trying to win over? 
So there are so many ways to help. Volunteering is one way. We are working with an FEC officer to make sure that we're compliant um, in terms of the individual contribution. Like the cap is 2,700 for the primary and 2,700 for the um, general in most cases. The state-by-state laws change a bit, but our FEC officer is making sure we're doing everything right, I promise. Basically, within the within the bounds of $2,700 in-kind monetary value donation, there are so many ways to help and we can always use more. And as we work, you know, we do customize our programs for every single candidate. So, you know, maybe one candidate doesn't really feel like she needs a campaign ad. Maybe she feels like she could use, you know, help, um, especially in these days, we're trying to tailor everything to like the COVID era and the stay-at-home era. So especially last month, it was really important to these candidates that they had a really, really strong social media presence because that was their way that they were, you know, they couldn't do the, do these town halls anymore in person and they couldn't go door to door and introduce themselves to voters. So with that in mind, we had people who might not specialize in production, but who ha- who were experts in social media. And we had them do audits for our candidates and then kind of make sure that they were reaching the biggest audience possible. So things like that, I think that the money donations kind of we, we do try to help in that area as much as we can, but I think that there's, there's really no limit to how much our volunteer base is capable of doing with just their time and their talents. What about in terms of PACs? I actually don't know anything about PACs. Is that something that kind of bypasses campaign finance laws? That when you have a PAC, there's still um, a cap on how much individuals can donate, but I mean, not for a super PAC, obviously, but the reason, and we've been, we've been trying to figure out if we're going to organize as like a proper entity, what we would be. People keep asking us if we're going to become a PAC. And at the moment, the answer is no. And that's because I think that the way that we're able to work right now is so nimble and so malleable and that's because we sort of are volunteer powered and we have these, this, this wealth of, of, you know, some of the most talented people in our country who are willing to work their tails off (laughs) and do, you know, everything that they can to give these women the exposure and help them tell their story and reach, reach their voters. I want to step back a little bit and just explore the idea of why is having gender equality, um, important and why is that a key component for democracy? Mm -hmm. Well, there are probably more than a million reasons (laughs) I can go into about why I think why women. We can probably start with what I think is the most logical reason for women and that is because our legislative bodies were established with the idea that they were representative of the people. And we, of course, can't, I mean, there's not enough that we, there's not enough time to really flesh that out and really decide if that's exactly true. But in the meantime, we'll just say that in theory, they were meant to represent the, the constituents. And considering the fact that the constituents are about 51% female, and that Congress is, I think, 25% female right now. So we have, you know, we have a ways to go before we're going to be actually represented, fully represented, you know, in, in our legislative system. So that's to start. I think that once we can have a representative legislative body that actually is representative of the complexion of the voters and the people in our country, then, you know, until we have that, we're, we're not going to have equity for, you know, for any, anyone, for women, for different races, religions backgrounds, everything. So our, um, our main concern really is just getting that representation. And then the next thing that I'll say is, I don't think that we can overstate or underestimate the importance of representation in terms of what people see in the rooms making the decisions. And so up until I was, you know, there was a time when a woman had never even stepped foot on the debate stage, there was a, t- and until a woman did, women didn't know that they could. And so when we can have women in positions of power and other women around the world can see those women in the positions of power, I think that that's, you know, then we're just one step closer. 
Right. So the idea that what you can see, then you can be, if you can imagine, then you can achieve. But but I guess on the, the flip side is our quote unquote democratic institutions have been working pretty well for white men <laughs> for many centuries. And there is, you know, a noticeable opposition to equality and equal representation, whether it's female representation or, you know, religious or um, racial representation. And, and so people who have power currently are feeling threatened and they don't, it, appear, it appears, agree with our definition of a democracy, right? So what do we do about that? I mean, I know this is a philosophical question, but how do we get, how do we get people if it's the right thing to do, which of course I do, I believe and you believe that, you know, equal equality is a right and just goal for us to have in society. How do we get other people to change their perspective on that? And so, you know, before you answer, uh, your, your role as someone who came from the media industry, I want to have you look through that lens. What role does the media have? What role does do brands and public figures, celebrities have to use their platform to advance these values? So actually, I think that something that my team and I have been talking about a lot, and actually something that has been brought up a few times recently on those platforms that we mentioned is the idea that storytelling, and I know that this is so cliche and you've heard it a million times, but storytelling actually does change minds. We saw Surviving R. Kelly was a story and it was the same story that people had been exposed to for years but it was told in a way that felt like entertainment and that felt like it was, you know, high production value and it was a trend and it was, you know, something that everyone was sort of talking about and it became something that was in the zeitgeist. And we saw a conviction. I mean, I think we saw a conviction and now I need to double check, but. Yes, there were, there were people who came out after that of victims who speaking up and, and they're, I believe, concurrent. So, and I remember thinking about that at the time how powerful, especially now nonfiction storytelling, and that's like becoming a new trend as well. But I think that it, it does something for a person to hear a story and sort of tap into their empathy if the story is told right. And I think that in the stories that we're trying to tell on behalf of our candidate, we're, we're really delving into the question of why are they running? Why is it important to them? Who are they and what happened in their lives to make them feel like this is the moment for them to become a leader? Um, And inside of those stories is is a sense of humanity um, that I think no matter who you are or what your kind of stature in the world is, everyone knows what it's like to wonder if they can lead. Everyone knows what it's like to have, you know, challenges in their lives or self-doubt. So I think that our purpose is kind of just to give these candidates a bit of humanity to show to their voters that they can, the voters can see this person that I'm going to be electing has a story and she's not just doing this for, you know, her own self-interest. She's doing it because she sees why it's important in the, you know, in the scheme of the world. And I think that that's really important. I think that that's like, no matter who is watching these videos, they're going to get to know the candidates better. And rather than just, you know, talking about policy or talking about what their plans to do, you know, what they plan to do once they get into office, I think that that's not as relatable and it doesn't tap into empathy in quite the same way. I want to just challenge you a little bit about the empathy part. Like, have, do you have examples of people watching stories and are there like research studies out there? And they've changed and shifted their attitudes about certain things, whether it's about race or, you know, gender equality or anything else. Was there a prejudice that they had or a bias that they had that was lessened through consuming stories? So in my own experience, actually, the story when they see us about the Central Park Five, it was something that I actually had already um, been reading about and and researching in, in, in my own life for my own purposes. But my 
own community, many of the people in my community, my family are white. Um, and I think that it shifted even the way that people felt about the criminal justice system, about prisons, about the prison system. <laughs> I think that it was told in a way that was, you know, you can see the empathy. You can't help but see the humanity. Um, and I think that it, it sort of, it's one of those things that I think people like to, like to cast like a binary kind of, they, I guess they see prisons versus non-prisons in like a binary lens. Um, like, you know, people who go to jail are bad or something like that. And especially if you're not intimate with the criminal justice system or I guess the system, then that is, it's easy to feel that way. You know, when you get pulled over by a cop, you're not afraid, for example. And I saw in my own circle that the, the miniseries, when they see us, definitely changed everybody's perspective on the criminal justice system, on race, on justice in general, and on whether or not, you know, fairness even exists for everyone the same way, which of course it doesn't. I think that's amazing because I loved that series and I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought it up. But I had a hard time getting my white friends to watch it who were, who were kind of not self-described progressives. So can I tell you what's so funny about that? And this is something when you first asked the question I was going to bring up, and then I was like, well, this is actually an example of the opposite, <laughs> which is that stories are great when people actually consume them, but when they don't, then there's not much we can do. So it's so funny you say that my sister produced the podcast Chasing Cosby. Um, I don't know if you listened no. to it. But. So she, and that came out this past year. And so there were, there was an event um, for the, for the podcast. And, you know, you look into the crowd and it was all women. There were like, there were truly a handful of men there. Um, it was all women. And you can imagine, I mean, so my sister said, and I'm glad to hear this, that she knows that, that men were watching, were listening to the podcast because of comments and emails that she got. But when you look out into the crowd for that event, I couldn't believe it. I was like, women don't need to hear this story. Women live this story. They know this story. And it would be really useful if, if you know, we could, we could just encourage our male counterparts to expose themselves, even though it's, it's hard. And I think we're getting closer. I, I'm optimistic. I am optimistic. Getting back to the, the videos that you produce for female candidates. So first of all, actually, what is the criteria for how you determine whether or not you support a, a female candidate? Is it, I mean, I'm sure you, you have limited resources and you have more candidates who want to work with you than you have volunteers. So how do you determine who you end up working with? So it's something that we, it's an ever-changing conversation and we keep having it and we keep opening it up. I feel like we, we think that we figured out the criteria and then we sort of have to open it back up and reassess. There are a few things that are deal breakers. We have never worked and will never work with someone who defines her, herself and her platform as pro-life. We're only working with pro-choice candidates. Um, but then there are some things that start to get a little bit murky when you only go based on platforms. And that's because even though a, a great, a big portion of our volunteers are, live on the coast and live in you know, blue states, most of our candidates don't. And so the volunteers have a certain definition of the word progressive. Um, and, then the, and then we start to meet our candidates from red state, deep red states, red states that would never dream of even like looking at a Democrat. Um, and so her platforms need to be a little bit more tailored to their district, her district. So things like gun control that I know I mean, I know how I feel about gun control. I, I don't understand why anyone has, I mean, but I'm from like, I live in New York. Like I really, I just, I, and I understand that I don't know. There's so much I have to learn about why people, you know, are not in favor of strict gun control, but things like that and not being able to be super outspoken about certain issues. So then we, we just reassess every single time. And, and the candidates are, the one thing that they all have in common is that they're all remarkable people. Um, and so we do try to work with as many of them as we possibly can. And so far we've been able to, to work with most of the people who sign up, most of the candidates who sign up. Um, and in many cases we are able to pair a volunteer up with a candidate that both it's, it's like, a, it's like a really, um, good match. Like the volunteer feels 
great about that candidate. And, you know, because the volunteers also vary in, you know, their worldviews and their um, politics and the types of candidates that they want to support. Is there some sort of success criteria or metric that you're using to evaluate the production value of your videos, the effectiveness, et cetera, other than, you know, the obvious, the, you know, commercial ones, <laughs> like as to whether someone's watching and um, taking action on those, but how do you know whether or not your story is actually compelling and how to actually tweak that for a, di- a different candidate the next time? Yeah, that's a really good question. We're still learning. We, I mean, we're two years old, so we're still learning every day. And I think that the metrics will change too, especially because even the platforms are different. Like I think that I think that we're using Instagram more than we ever have, which I, I wouldn't have anticipated a couple of years ago. Um, so I think that as you mentioned, like, you know, the shares, engagement, comments, things like that. I also think that we'll know that we were successful when we've reached out to voters that might not have known about that candidate before. So it's one thing to kind of, you know, release the video out into an echo chamber, but if we can release it into a wider net of people who might love that candidate and they just hadn't heard of her or hadn't, you know, hadn't explored her, her, um, her values. So I think that that's really when we'll, when we know that we've been successful is when we have expanded her net for her. And in terms of packaging the candidate to be more palatable to a broader audience, you know, there have been studies by neuroscientists and um, psychologists that have identified that amongst female political candidates, the more feminine you look and present, the more likely you're going to win. And so if a candidate, for example, going back to Hillary, when she put the headband on that was potentially more feminine, if you had certain kind of makeup or longer hair, basically, if you look like the the newscasters on Fox News, (laughs) you're going to be more likely to be elected. Is that part of your consideration in packaging your candidates? Because the goal is ultimately to win, even if it doesn't necessarily align with how she might want to present herself? We're not really in the business of changing the candidates' identities or presentations. We're in the business of giving them a platform and taking who they already are and sort of just pushing it out further into the ether. So yes, yeah, so no, we, it's not really up to us, you know, what the candidates look like or how they present. And I, I think that if we even wanted to start doing something like that, it might not even be in our in our ethos, I think that it would probably be our entire existence is based on the idea that these women have something to offer just as they are. They have something different. They have something unique and um, they tell a unique story, especially when you consider the people that are currently leading us. (laughs) The short answer is no, we really don't. (laughs) What do you see as some of the impediments to getting your message out there and amplifying the stories of these women candidates that you're supporting? I suppose it's a challenge when the candidates already have a deep history in a category that's polarizing. The good news, though, is that most of the time that category is altruistic and their work has been altruistic. So it's not hard to get the people on our team to get behind them. Everyone on our team is you know, sort of the most excited by those candidates. But I I guess it's sort of just telling a fuller story and giving the women a microphone and a chance to take control of that narrative and make sure that it's being positioned in, in a way that's telling their story as best that they can and as honestly as they can. I I don't know if you actually have this data, but amongst your thousand plus volunteers in the work that they do during the day in their day jobs, how are they promoting gender equality, if at all? either in the production of stories that they're creating, the commercials that they're creating, et cetera, so that they're helping to shift the mindset of our country so that what they're doing with Women for the Win can be more effective as well. Something that I love about our volunteer base is that they, first of all, they're doing such a variety of jobs in their day jobs. Like many of them do come from entertainment, but then there's like a a diversity in even what kind of entertainment and, and the genres and the 
types of different stories that they're telling and things like that. Um, I think that the most noticeable way that they're promoting our values is probably inside of their of their own networks and of their own offices, you know, sort of promoting their female colleagues' ideas in meetings and making sure that if there's, you know, a younger woman who is sort of like afraid to speak up, that they're supporting her and and just sort of walking into the rest of their lives with the knowledge that we're here to support women. The end. Like we're here to support women no matter what. We we don't want to be a place of judgment. We want to be a place of support. We want to be a support system. And you know, women are getting enough flack from other areas of the world. We we want to be a source of of goodness and something that they can feel good about. So in this, you know, the midst of COVID, we can't not talk about the the very varying responses that is gendered across the globe with regard to which countries are more successful in their response and which countries have been less successful. And there have been articles in the past several weeks about how female leaders, notably in New Zealand and you know Germany and Taiwan and other parts of the world, that being a woman has informed their effective, immediate, and long-term approaches to addressing COVID. So what are your thoughts about that and, and how it reiterates and supports your narrative that we need more women in elected office? The Harvard Business Review did a study last year. I can't believe our luck <laughs> that they decided to do this study. They found that women were rated as excelling in taking initiative acting with resilience, practicing self-development, driving for results, and displaying high integrity and honesty. And they were measured to be more effective in 84% of the competencies than the study um, usually measures, and that's, you know, with, with male leaders. So women make highly competent leaders, and they, I think that what ends up holding them back is the confidence gap that people speak about all the time and you know this because then they then you know there's the, the other side of the study which found that they rated much lower in self-confidence and self-assuredness and that these areas actually get better with age so there's something to be said for that and it might be women being more receptive to feedback being more critical of their decisions and you know more thoughtful in their decisions because they are you know less self-assured not that they need to be but so then as they age, they've, you know, taken the feedback and, and really thought about it and really let it sink in. And, and then it sort of informed the leaders that they become later. So there's this kind of this internal and I think external variables that impact why we don't have more women leaders. Obviously, to one of them is this confidence gap. It's internal that we're not socialized to believe in ourselves as much and we question ourselves and then externally there's all structural sexism keeps us from being able to have access to those opportunities and to even make use of them because with COVID it exposes how much we do at home and so if we have to have a job and raise the kids and be in charge of their homeschooling and do all these other things and not get equal support in the home then some people might just choose, as I'm seeing in my my uh, Facebook groups, a lot of people are saying they're leaving their job to watch the kids because long-term, this might be a, a year or two, you know, before we get out of this and their husband's jobs are more important. And so they're, I've, se- I've seen a lot of people saying they're going to have to leave their jobs. I don't like to hear, I don't like to hear that. So why? Because their their husbands are making more money. That wasn't explicit, um, but I think that their husband's careers were more important, even if they don't make more money. And, and, and I don't think that people had the, the um, uh, a sophisticated enough post or discussion to each actually interrogate whether or not the husband's job may actually be more important in defining the husband's self-worth. And so that might pose greater risk for the stability of the family unit, potentially, if he's at home unemployed and she's working and he's asked to be the main caretaker for the kids. Wow. Well, I mean, that is sort of one of the main reasons that I think Women for the Win even needs to exist is just to kind of be there to be this massive support system for women that know that it's going to be an incredible uphill battle. 
and that they know that there's, you know, this group of people that's not just women, by the way, our volunteer base is not just women. There's plenty of men that volunteer too. So there's this support system and sort of these cheerleaders for the women that it's, it's not easy. And I, I don't even think that I realized until I started working on this, um, the sort of David and Goliath proportions <laughs> that many of our candidates are dealing with. I mean, many of our candidates are up against male opponents who won't even debate them. They won't even dignify their candidacy with a debate. Are there rules around that? If you have a certain number of candidates that the there's an ordinance to say that there has to be a debate so that the public has access to platforms of each of the candidates? No, I'm not sure. I actually should find out. I know that when we when we do our screening process with a lot of the female candidates that we're working with, that's the answer. And it's not like they're not, you know, it's not like these women are polling, you know, so far behind that they're not qualified. It's like they're, you know, they're they're holding their own. They're fifty percent, sometimes fifty one percent, and they're beating these these male opponents. Um, a lot of the time, it's a male incumbent, and you know, he doesn't really want to be seen as weak. You know, he doesn't think that he is. He doesn't think that he has to sit, you know, sink to the level of dignifying the candidacy of, you know, sort of calling attention to it even or, or bringing it to his constituents' attention. He just sort of wants to keep going as he's been. And so many of these, I can't tell you how many of these cases we're dealing with, like, career politicians, men who have been in office for decades. And then we have this woman who finally got up the courage to run, raised enough money got enough of a following, you know, got enough support. And then the men won't even debate. It's not, it's sort of, it's sort of unbelievable unless you've seen it as many times as we have now. And then you realize that it's just a trend. Mm. In terms of this upcoming election, like what do you think we need to do to help support more equitable and inclusive representation in our elected officials is besides women for the win is there anything that we as individuals can be doing besides donating money (laughs) and volunteering but what kind of conversations should we be having where should we be having them how often something that you touched upon in an earlier question was the concept of like the unconscious bias And that's sort of like the catch-all name for what we're dealing with and what we're seeing in these races and what women are up against in all areas of their lives, but especially women who are, you know, brave enough and bold enough to run for office. Things like likability and, you know, if they're kind of makeup they're wearing, what kind of clothes they're wearing, things that we would never dream. I mean, (laughs) if anyone's ever seen Mitch McConnell, like I can't, (laughs) he doesn't look, he's not looking good. It's this unconscious bias that we probably are doing without even, we are doing without even realizing it. And the way we talk about women, I'd encourage people to take a step back and evaluate the way that they talk about women and especially the way that they talk about female candidates. And it's often people with great intentions, people who would describe themselves as feminists that are using, you know, language and, and judgment and, you know, passing, passing real judgment on women who are running for office that they never would do for men. I'm glad you brought up the likability word again, because you started off mentioning that in terms of the political uh, landscape that we're dealing with. Isn't likability in itself a gendered term because we're not using it for men, right? So the fact that we actually have a criteria for evaluating whether someone is competent or fit for office already is skewed. And so how do we then, you know, catch, what are the ways that we can catch ourselves when that criteria comes in and that implicit bias comes in? If we're having a conversation amongst friends, what's the respectful, kind way of calling that out in other people? Because I, I'm very direct and I say, I use the term, there's that internalized sexism. We all have, I admit that we all have it, but I feel like by calling it out and admitting that we all are susceptible to it, before I call it out, it makes it okay. But I also feel like we don't have time, like the house is burning. So we need to be calling things out right away so that we can address it right away. We don't have time for people to go through their journey of self-discovery. So I, my approach is actually, you know, probably, I don't know how effective that is, but it's, it's fine with me. <laughs> what kind of approach would you have? 
I'm so glad that you're, you're doing that because, and then by the way, that's what I would do. That is what I do. Um, but I think that it's one of those things and I wish that this is, this is where, this is where it becomes more frustrating than we can even really describe. And that's because there's so many people who don't, who think that they're ready for a ready and you know, I'm using air quotes ready for a female president or wants a female president, even they would even go as far as to say we we need a female president. But then when it comes down to the candidates in front of them, Oh, she's this, or she's that, or she's to this, or she's to that. So, you know, the, the standards become like, you know, exponentially higher for these women that are bold enough to run. So I think that when it comes to being able to have those conversations, it's, that's where it's really the hardest because you have to be able to not just defend this abstract idea that women deserve a spot, you know, a spot on the, on the ticket. It's like, no, that woman deserves a spot. We have to defend each individual woman one by one because everyone thinks that they're a feminist and everyone thinks that they feel in their hearts, you know, their, their intentions are good. But then when it comes to the women, that's where, that's where they, they can't, they have to draw the line. So I think that giving women candidates the benefit of the doubt is useful. And I think encouraging your friends and the people that you're talking to, to see these candidates through the same lens that they see male candidates, because, you know, male candidates get every benefit of the doubt. They're getting, they're getting all the benefit of the doubt in the world all the time. I mean, I always tell people like if, if a woman was behaving the way that Trump was behaving, she would have, I mean, I don't even know what would happen. I truly don't want to think what would happen. It would be crazy. And it never would have gone on this long. So, but then it's hard to say because you're, starting to get into hypotheticals and then, you know, people are able to punch holes in your argument. So I think just giving each individual female candidate a little bit more of a benefit of the doubt than you normally would and looking at them for all of the obstacles that it took to get them to even the place where they've become a household name and you're talking about them. That's already very special because it took them so much more to even get to that place than it took their male counterparts. Are there any female candidates that you want to give a shout out to? Yeah, okay. We have a lot of female candidates we want to give a shout out to. So with Melanie DiRigo in Port Washington, um, and she is up against a male Democratic incumbent who is one of those situations where everybody thinks that they're a Democrat and he's a Democrat, so he must be fine. But we've learned through working with Melanie that he's really a welcome mat for Trump. He's sort of sucking up to Trump in his, the way he votes and the way that he behaves. So we were so proud to support Melanie and we made an amazing video for her that's going to be launching soon. Um, actually, by the time we, this airs, it probably already will have launched. We're working with Kathy Ellis in Missouri. She's running um, for the U.S. House of Representatives, Missouri 8. And she's incredible. Kathy Ellis, Phyllis Harvey Hall is running in Alabama. Pat Timmons Goodson um, in North Carolina, District 8. Kim Nelson in South Carolina, District 4. These are all, I can't say enough good things. They all are incredible. They're all up against men who have already proven that they're not really in it for the right reasons, that they're not really in it for the constituents. Um, and all of those women come from backgrounds in healthcare, in um, social work. You know, they've sort of been public servants since long before they even thought about running. And Kim Nelson, especially, she comes from medicine. She's really critical of the way that her opponent handles coronavirus in his district. So she's going to be the one to really get her district through this crisis. Um, and she's going to, you know, hope that, hope that she can win and then make sure that everybody gets access to healthcare. We've come to the point in the conversation where we ask every guest a series of questions I call the engendered questionnaire. First question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Female voices have always been, have always been the wise and thoughtful and empathetic voices, I think, in our nation's history, in our world's history. And I think that silencing female voices, and I don't mean never hearing female voices. I mean, just not hearing them in an equitable way as, you know, sort of letting men speak louder and more often. Then we risk 
we risk losing access to this wisdom that, you know, half of the population has within them and lived experience. You know, there's, there's, there's so much lived experience that we won't hear about and won't know about if we're not living in an equitable world. What gives you hope? It gives me hope is our roster of volunteers that's growing every day. I can't believe how many people are fired up and excited and, you know, willing to spend their time and their talent on just this idea that women deserve a voice. I mean, my God, it's, it's incredible. And it's every single day. It's like, it's the best thing. I just, sometimes I just look at the list and I'm like, and it grows every day and more people sign up and, and even more people, um, you know, are, are DMing our Instagram asking for how they can get involved. And um, I think that this, say what you will about the era we're living in, it's getting people fired up and we're going to make progress because people are, people are just too charged. People are just too excited. It's amazing. It's, it's terrible that it got to this point, but it's amazing that people are feeling, feeling the energy of the moment. And final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? more of, and I know that this sounds like, you know, just kind of plugging women for the win, but if we have women in leadership positions, and I'm not just talking about women, I'm talking about all races and backgrounds and stories and outlooks and religions, everything. If we have every single person in our legislative bodies, the people making the laws about our world and how to, you know, how our country operates, then there, we won't see the same kind of oppression anymore because the, the lived experience and the stories and the backgrounds will combine to kind of cover all the bases and make sure that, you know, everyone, we're not just looking at a, a room filled with white men who only know their own lived experience and are legislating accordingly. Thank you, Jordan, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Go to womenforthewind.org and sign up to volunteer. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.